Today we're looking at Jeremiah chapter 29. I'm reading out of the Pew Bible that's right in front of you, and so if you want to follow along and you didn't bring your own Bible, you can open up that, uh, our house Bibles, and we will be on page 695, page 695 here in the house Bible. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 1 in your own Bible, and we are using the CSB translation today. Jeremiah has often been called the weeping prophet. It's an old title for Jeremiah that you might well have heard of, the weeping prophet. And the idea is because, apparently, as they say, no one ever listened to Jeremiah. Jeremiah took the word of the Lord, and he even says that back in Jeremiah chapter 21, or Jeremiah chapter 1, which we looked at several weeks ago. It even says this, that Jeremiah is going to go and speak to the nation of Israel, to the people of God, after some of them had already been taken off into captivity in Babylon, and he was to prophesy about it, and the people didn't listen to him. They never did what he said. But it's not entirely accurate to say that nobody listened to Jeremiah. There are actually quite a few people who received the Word of God through Jeremiah and who believed it and kept it. And that's what we get to turn our attention to today. You see, while many in Israel had already been taken off and taken captive by the Babylonians the first time that they came and attacked, yet there were still more who still lived in the area, who still lived in Jerusalem, and the final judgment of God over the area hadn't come. And those people, under the king Zedekiah and several other kings, they had thoughts about rebelling against Babylon and fleeing to Egypt and doing all sorts of things that God told them not to do. See, God, having brought them out of Egypt, told them they were never to go back that way. And rather, God said that He had raised up the Babylonians as judgment against Israel, and what they were supposed to do was go off into captivity in Babylon, and that if they followed the Lord even there, even in the midst of the judgment they deserved for all kinds of evil they were doing, God would still take care of them and provide for them in exile. But just like they had rebelled against God all their lives, just like their parents, even in this they rebelled against God. And yet, here in Jeremiah chapter 29, we have from Jeremiah a word of God to those exiles who already had left and were in Babylon, people that Jeremiah never got to meet. The end of the story for Jeremiah's life is, even as he tells the people still in Jerusalem while he is still in Jerusalem, don't go to Egypt follow in God's judgment, and He will be lenient on you, and He will provide for you in exile just like He does for Esther, just like He does through Esther for all of Israel. But they rebel, and they take Jeremiah along with them to Egypt. And so Jeremiah never meets the people that he's writing this letter to today. But here in Jeremiah chapter 29, he writes a letter to the people who did hear his message. The weeping prophet who was surrounded by people who never listened to him and abused him and neglected him. In fact, chapters 27 and 28 right before now are about how he is abused and thrown out of the temple, about how he makes this yoke, a wooden ox yoke, and he puts it on his shoulders as one more of Jeremiah's object lessons, and he walks into the town and he says, God has made the yoke of the Babylonians for you. You are to go off into captivity when the Babylonians come and not try to fight against them. If you fight against them, you're all going to die, is, uh, is what God says. One of the false prophets there in Jerusalem takes Jeremiah's yoke and breaks it in half and beats up Jeremiah and kicks him out. And then Jeremiah is to show up the next day with an iron yoke 
to say you need to obey the word of the Lord. Though the people in Jerusalem do not listen to Jeremiah, these ones who are already been taken off into exile, the useful people, these artisans, skilled craftsmen, soldiers and leaders who are all taken out to go and serve in Babylon already, they do heed the word of Jeremiah. People like Daniel, people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who are in captivity but live righteous lives before God. And so, what we have in this letter from Jeremiah today is a letter that answers the question, how do you live rightly in exile? How do you live a right life before God when the place that you're living is very far from your home? How do you live rightly before God in all situations, no matter who surrounds you? This will be a great comfort to anyone who feels surrounded by an evil culture or neighbors or co-workers or anyone who has ever felt far from home and finds that the place they're living in is not a place where they always feel like they belong. So, since God has spoken to these people, And since God has spoken to us, let's pray together and let's receive His Word. Let's read it. Father God, I thank You that You're so gracious to us as to speak to us. I pray that we would hear it and believe it. This I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 1. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the remaining exiled elders, the priests, the prophet, and all the people that Nebuchadnezzar had deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah, the queen mother, and the court officials, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, the metalsmiths, had left Jerusalem. He sent the letter with Elasa, the son of Saphan, and Gamariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of, Judea, uh, king of Judah, rather, sent to Babylon to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. So, all these skilled people and tradespeople and court officials and royal people had already been sent off into Babylon and were living there. And Jeremiah doesn't get to meet them, but he sends them a letter. And this is the letter that he sends to them. The letter stated... This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles. I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live there. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Find wives for yourself and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Pursue the well-being of the city that I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. You see, being a foreigner, living as an alien, is something inherent to the Christian faith and Christian life, and it always has been. After all, When God begins his nation Israel, the very first thing that he does is he takes a man of faith, Abraham, and what does he do with Abraham? But to call him to leave his home country and live as a sojourner all of his life. 
God takes Abraham and he says, Abraham, here's what you're going to do. I've shown favor on you. I have mercy on you. And here's what God's favor and mercy is to Abraham. You're going to leave your home country and you're never going to return to it. In all of your life, you're going to sojourn. That means wander in a land that is not your own. But God says, I'm going to be with you and bless you and provide for you. And someday I'm going to give this land to your descendants so they will be at home. If the faith, if the first man trusting God here, Abraham, has to live his life as an alien, then for all of us Christians, we'll understand that a part of our faith down on through history has always been about living in a place where we don't quite belong. If we as Christians are members of God's kingdom, well, we live in the world. And so we all live our lives as exiles. Jesus will say, you are not of this world. I have chosen you out of this world. So do not live like the rest of the world. And so it goes on down through history that the people who have understood Christ's call the best have been those who felt the least at home in this world, always. Those who feel the most at home in this world have always struggled to understand this calling of God, renouncing the world, of following after Him. But God's calling for them in exile is somewhat surprising, is it not? Jeremiah writes a letter to these exiles, and what's the letter say? Build a house. It's not exactly the advice I was expecting. You know, if you're living in exile, you might expect that the answer from God that you want to hear is, just hold tight a second. I'm bringing you right back home. Don't unpack. We're going back tomorrow. You know, the wrath of God is already satisfied. Your punishment is over with. Come on back. My children have a way of asking me to do something for them, and I'll say, in a minute, which colloquially means, when I get around to it, and they always want to take it literally. It's been a minute, Dad. <laughs> I forget that I have to say, when I get to it, it will be the right time. I'm not, I'm not putting a time limit on what I'm currently doing. I have to finish this, and then I will do what you want me to do. So it is, you might imagine, these exiles wanting to know from God how long they will have to live as exiles before they can return to the land. This attitude that goes on for hundreds of years, all the way through the birth of Christ, His ministry on earth, His death on the cross, and His resurrection, when His disciples ask Him, how long till you restore Israel? When are we going back home? And Jesus, He doesn't say, we're never going to do that. Jesus says, essentially, when it's time. Jesus says, it's not time right now, rather it's time for something else. And so, just as surprisingly for these exiles, God says to them now, not, hey, don't unpack because we're going back soon. God rather says to them, build a house, plant a garden, plant some trees, the kind of trees that aren't going to bear fruit until after your death. Dig in some roots Earlier in the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah is told not to marry because he's living in Jerusalem, and this is one of those object lessons of Jeremiah, like the yoke and like the figs and like the pottery that's smashed. One other object lesson of Jeremiah is God says to Jeremiah, by way of object lesson, Jeremiah, you're never going to marry. And the reason you're never going to marry is to show to people that if you married and started having children, those children would be born right about the time y'all are all going into exile, and it'd be a terrible time to do it. So as a symbol to the nation, you're not going to marry, Jeremiah. And yet he says to these exiles the very opposite. Go ahead and get married. Have some children. Dig some roots. 
God says to these exiles, go ahead and not just find wives for yourselves, find wives for your children. This is going to be a multiple generation thing. God's calling for them is not, I'm about to bring you back home, but God's calling for them is, I am going to make you thrive in the midst of your exile. It's fascinating. God's calling to them is, I am going to make you thrive in the midst of difficulty. I am going to bless you and provide for you and make you thrive even in the hardest seasons of your life. God's calling for them is the good life. God wants good for them. God has called them to thrive, but He has called them to thrive in exile, not at home. Now, this is going to be awfully helpful for any of you Christians who feel not quite at home in the world or who have understood homesickness, who have, like the song says, I'm kind of homesick for a country I've never seen. It's a longing to be with the Lord that the Apostle Paul talks about. When the Apostle Paul says, I long to be with the Lord, but to be away from the body is to be present with the Lord, and it's better for me, for y'all, that I stay here in the body. So either way, I win. Either way, it's God's blessing on each of you, Paul says. We live a life in the world away from the kingdom of God. We live a life with an expectation, just like the disciples and just like the exiles here, that God is going to set everything right someday. See, we Christians believe that Christ is going to return just in the way that He went. And that day when Christ returns, He will set all wrongs right. Our hope for the future is incredible. And our hope for the future is entirely in Christ, that someday He is the one being patient. He is the one waiting on you to put your trust in Him, but one day will be the day when He is done being patient and waiting, and He will return and set everything that is wrong right and usher in His kingdom. Until that day, we live as exiles, but I tell you, God's calling for you is to thrive in exile. So, what's the application for us? It's very similar to what it is for Israel here. God's calling for you is to build up, build up, to prepare a community, to create a place. I would argue for you today, I would suggest that every, each, every individual family is its own little mini-civilization, is it not? You ever remember being a child and going over to a friend's house, maybe spend the night over there, and everything's somewhat like your house, but not exactly. They do things slightly differently. You remember going over to a friend's house, and the smell was slightly different. Not necessarily bad, just different. Did you have dinner at a friend's house, and the food that they served you wasn't what you were familiar with? You ever go over to a friend's house, and they just did things differently? If you can recall that, then you can realize that each family you can go now as an anthropologist or an archaeologist to other people's families and realize each family is a, like a little different civilization. Each family is building its own different little culture. The way your parents did it that you decided were good and you kept in your family is culture building and a civilization building. The things your parents did that you are not proud of, 
that you renounced and tried to remove from your life is exactly the same. Each family has its own habits, its own diet, its own calendar. Each family celebrates different holidays in different ways, and what God has called you to do here in the midst of the world is cultivate a civilization in this way. And so what I tell you today, dear church members, dear friends and family who have congregated today, by having a family and building a household, you're building your own miniature civilization, and you are choosing each day how this civilization, you as a king or a queen of this household, are choosing how this household will be, what gods this household will worship, what holidays this family will celebrate, what kind of civilization this family will be. And likewise, I tell you, in the midst of a world that is not newly hostile to our faith, but has always been hostile to the faith of Christianity, that you're building an embassy in the midst of a hostile world. You are creating this. Now, I tell you, if you're still living at home, though no longer a child, you can be a part of building this as well. I tell you today, if you don't have children at home any longer, you're still a part of the family civilization that you started. By all means, not in, you know, not in mean ways, not in passive-aggressive ways, not in, well, I didn't teach you to do that kind of ways, but as kindly as you can, continue to build that civilization. And what's more, I tell you, if the family is a central block of civilization, so much more the church as well. And not just a family, but we together are building our own little community, are we not? Wasn't this what was so devastating about COVID for everyone? that it interrupted all kinds of community and reminded everyone how necessary it is for us to get together and to be friends with each other? Aren't we still rebuilding relationships that were harmed by being absent from each other for so long? We are, each one of us together, building a community, a culture, a civilization within the world just as God has called. And what did God call them to do? Build houses and lives, plant gardens and eat their produce, find wives for yourself, have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons, give your daughters to be married so they can bear sons and daughters, multiply, do not decrease, pursue the well-being of the city that I have deported you to, pray to the Lord on its behalf, for when it thrives, you will thrive. God said, first of all, multiply. It's not the first time that He's called people to multiply, is it? And yet here, it continues on, the same calling that He has always had. Build a civilization. Multiply. Multiply the praises of the Lord. Thrive and grow. And while you're doing it, pursue the well-being of the city that I have deported you to. He says this, pursue the good of the city. Pray for the city so that you can thrive within it. Because if the city is falling apart and burning down, you're not going to fare much better either. That's what he says. Pursue the good of your neighbors. Listen, if we, dear church, are a community together, and if you, dear friends, are looking for a community to be a part of, you are all welcome here. As we say every Sunday morning, welcome home. Uh, We're glad you're here, and you are more than welcome. Welcome. 
But even if we're doing this in the middle of a sometimes hostile place, we are not hostile to the neighbors around us. We are here for the good of our neighbors. We are here for the good of our city. We're here for the good of our town and for the good of our community. We are here for the good of our nation. So what does it look like to pursue the good of the city? Well, it doesn't look like simply owning and beating your opponent. This isn't pursue the good of yourselves against the good of everybody else in the city who disagrees with you. And so we can't be satisfied simply winning, but we must seek the good of all. But this isn't like a libertarian idea of things either, where, hey, listen, everybody do whatever's good, you do what's good, you do what you think is good, y'all all do whatever. There's nothing quite right or wrong, just be free and leave everybody alone because it's not honest. Some things actually are foolish. Some policies and laws take advantage of the poor and are unjust in themselves. To pursue the good of the city that we live in is to pursue not just, hey, everybody, you know, let real hands off, but is to, in certain ways, have a hands-on. These things are wrong and bad for families and are hurting them, and these things are good and right. And so, laws likewise must encourage what is good and right and must punish what is bad and evil and harms other people. Some things are foolish and should be called this. Other things are good. So, how can you pursue the good of your city? You live in New Ellington, or you live in Aiken, or you simply live joyfully in the county, not quite in anybody's city limits. But how do you pursue the good of your city? Well, the easiest way, I think, is volunteer. But yeah, vote. Make the case for what is good. Lobby for what is good. Care about your neighbors and then actually care for your neighbors. Teach them the joy that you have. If we Christians are the kind of people who are to share with other people, then that's not just sharing dinner with other people. It is sharing dinner with other people, by all means. And it's not just sharing wealth with other people, though it is sharing what we have monetarily with other people, but is also sharing the joy that we have in Christ. If you have reason for hope in a bleak world, then by all means, share it with somebody else. Perhaps you ought to be able to take inventory of your life if you want to understand and obey this passage rightly. Then ask yourself this question, how is the city I live in better because of my presence? How have I helped out and then be able to write down some concrete ways that it is. And if it's not, that's okay. We're not here to beat you over the head. What I'm here to do is say, you've got plenty of time to now do some things to make your neighborhood, your community, your city all the better. Can you point to a way that you have made New Ellington better or Aiken? Can you point to a way that you've made your neighborhood better? Can you point to a way that you've made your school better? You know, one of the losses of the last couple of years that I was so sad about is uh, one of the ways that many of us in this church endeavored to do it was in being as present as possible in some of our schools. I think we're going to get to again this fall, especially since most of our schools are in dire need of help and assistance uh, because of teacher shortages. Uh, I really, really enjoyed I got to go with uh, Chucker Creek and do a mentoring program before COVID, and I went like every Wednesday afternoon and met with one child, and we just read books together because of how important it is for a child to have somebody reading to them, for them to learn how to read. And we made some great progress in two years, my little friend Tobias and I, and then I didn't see him for two years. 
But then I did again, and we recognized each other and what joy there was. I love, and I think we're going to get to start again, our Good News Bible Clubs, after-school programs that we do at Greendale and that we do at Shucker, where we get to keep kids after school, feed them a snack, share the gospel with them, hang on to them a little bit longer and tell them all about Christ. Let us pursue the good of our city which is pursuing the good of our neighborhood, which is pursuing the good of our schools. Let us in all ways pray for and pursue the good of the place that we live so that we can thrive in it, so that they can thrive in it, so that they can know about the joy we have in Christ. The letter has not ended yet. There's more. Verse 8, this is what the Lord of armies says. The God of Israel says, don't let your prophets who are among you and your diviners deceive you. Don't listen to the dreams you elicit from them, for they are prophesying falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them. This is the Lord's declaration. See, there are these prophets and these people that are all around telling the Israelites in exile, God's about to bring you back. He wants you to live your best life now. He is going to take care of you in every way that you want Him to take care of you, not in the ways He said He's going to take care of you. You get to be the boss of this. There are all these false prophets. We can just call it marketing because we know that this is the way you're going to live the good life. And they're out in the, to the exiles, and these people are in Jerusalem right now telling them the wrong things to do, and these people are obviously in our world today telling the wrong things as well. But let's keep on. Verse 15, if we jump down just for a second, we'll come back and read uh, 10 to 14, but jump down, verse 15, some more about those false prophets. You have said... The Lord has raised up prophets for us in Babylon. But this is what the Lord says concerning the king sitting on David's throne and concerning all the people living in this city, that is, concerning your brothers who do not go with you to exile. This is what the Lord of armies says, I am about to send sword, famine, and plague against them. I will make them like rotten figs that are inedible because they are so bad. I will pursue them with sword, famine, and plague. I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth, a curse and a desolation, an object of scorn, a disgrace among all nations where I have banished them. I will do this because they have not listened to my words. This is the Lord's declaration. The words that I sent to them with my servants, the prophets, time and time again, and you too have not listened. This is the Lord's declaration. Hear the word of the Lord, all you exiles. I have sent from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is what the Lord of armies, the God of Israel, says about Ahab, son of Coliah, and concerning Zedekiah, the son of Masaiah, the ones prophesying a lie to you in my name. I am about to hand them over to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, and he will kill them before your very eyes." Based on what happens to them, all the exiles of Judah who are in Babylon will create a curse that says, May the Lord make you like Zedekiah and Abraham, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire, because they have committed an outrage in Israel by committing adultery with their neighbors' wives and having spoken in my name a lie which I did not command them. I am he who knows. I am a witness. This is the Lord's declaration. These evil leaders who are still there in Jerusalem continue to do evil things, 
And they have prophets in Jerusalem, and there are prophets over in Babylon who are all saying, God's raising up these leaders for our sake, and God's going to use them to bring us out of exile and reestablish his nation. And God says, it's all a lie. These are evil people doing evil things. I'm sending my word out to the people over and over again, time and time again, very clearly, and they're simply seeking to distort it. God's will for these people is that they're going to go off into Babylon, into exile, but thrive there, and then someday they'll be restored to the land, and someday a king in David's line will be born who's going to be a blessing on all nations. It's Christ. See, God has a plan, and they are steadfastly resisting it and doing all kinds of evil. And God says to the point of, here's, here's how you know it's going to be bad for them. Y'all are going to have a curse that you develop in your language, and the curse is going to be this. May it go as badly for you as it went for Zedekiah, who was roasted in the fire by the king of Babylon. They'll simply become a cautionary tale about how it is wrong to worship or how it is wrong to be led astray by these bad prophets. I said, I tell you guys today, this happens for us as well. Don't listen to bad prophets. The grass is not greener outside of the will of God. Little deceptions exist out there, and these little deceptions, we just call marketing, all right? Little deceptions, not grand evils, just little deceptions, little ones, like marketing slogans, like, hey, if you eat this, you'll be happy. Not, if you eat this, you're going to regret it in about an hour. You know, <laughs> just saying. The marketing is not holding up for some things. There's the marketing that's like, you know what, scary tap water. You should drink out of a bottle only. Buy lots of them. Listen, y'all, we live upstream of Savannah River. Water should be all right, yeah? Probably. I drink it. Yeah. So far, so good. Some of y'all older than I have been drinking the tap water here for a while. Please let me know. Uh, but I'm in. Because even now, it's not that bottled water better, tap water scary. I mean, the new thing is that alkaline water, even better than regular bottled water. And I tried some with like a pH of 9, 10. And you can't tell a difference. I promise you, you cannot tell a difference. I will blind taste test it with you. And it's just water. But apparently, the higher pH is supposed to be better for you. Never mind that that's not been proven in any way by any double blind test. Marketing. You know, some of this is just marketing. Little deceptions. You will be more happy this way. You will be healthier in this way. It's marketing. Have you ever bought into the marketing and bought something that you thought was going to be great and then had buyer's remorse? Oh, man. Now that I have it, I would have rather have had the money that I traded for it. Little deceptions we call marketing, but there are more sinister, larger deceptions, and there always have been. These prophets are calling people to disobey God, and God's judgment is coming rightly on them because the way that they're disobeying God is in evil ways, and they're, they're preying on each other. They're preying on women and on neighbors' wives. They're preying on the poor. They're making excuses for it because of the gravity of the situation and because of the national security crisis that is going on in Israel at the time with all these foreign nations. We're just going to have to press some people, and that's going to be okay. We're just going to have to do some things. Everybody needs to fall in line with the administration's regime because whatever. 
Some things are little deceptions, little marketing. Some things are larger or more sinister, and that's what, that's what Jeremiah is calling out. These prophets are promising what sounds good and is supposed to make their life better, but it's not what God has planned for them. It's not good and it's not right because all good things come from God. I tell you today, as a person who, okay, maybe I can't vouch for the tap water here longer than seven years, but in seven years it's done me pretty well. Uh, But I've been following Christ a lot longer, and I can vouch for following Christ. I can tell you the joy that there is in following Christ. If your goal in life is to be happy all the time and never sad, if your goal in life is pursuing good mental health, which for you simply means happy all the time and never sad, you're going to be disappointed. Nobody is happy all the time and never sad. But if you want to pursue a life that is good, there will be suffering and there will be hard times. The good life requires hard work. It will cost, but it will be worth it. That's what makes it the good life in Christ. The call is challenging, and it doesn't bring immediate gratification every time, but because God has called certain things right and certain things wrong, following Him receives His blessing, and even better, as these captives are going to find out, they receive His presence in the midst of their suffering. They're not going to get it the way they want. They're going to remain in exile, but God's still going to be with them in exile. Will that be enough for them? They're not going to get it the way they want, but they are going to get the presence of God in their life. Will that be enough for them? What about you? What if you pray earnestly to God for something and He doesn't give it to you, but He does give you His presence? Will that be enough for you? What if you pray earnestly for a child And God doesn't provide for you, but He does give you the Holy Spirit. Will this be enough for you? What if you pray earnestly that God would provide for your needs, and instead He provides for these needs you didn't know you had, and He provides for them in His way, but not in the way that you wanted? Will that be enough for you? Uh, The world says that happiness comes from unlimited romantic expression. That's the, that's the way the prophets of today speak in our culture. You want to be happy, what you need to do is be able to express romantic feelings and tendencies and passions in any way you want to, and no one should tell you otherwise. But this is false prophecy. That actually leads to captivity. That leads to hurting. That leads to abuse of others. That doesn't lead to the good life. It might lead to immediate gratification, but it will hurt you and it will hurt the other people around you. Some will say that happiness comes from unlimited romantic expression in any way that you want, and to disagree with this is evil, oppressive bigotry. But that's not true. It's a lie. And God will bring justice for those who tell it. Some people will say to you that happiness comes from being able to choose how to identify yourself in any way that you want to, no matter what, including gender. Forget about how you were born. Forget about how God's created you and the fact that God has created you good and on purpose and that He loves you dearly. Rather, real happiness is going to be able to come when you can pass as whoever you want to, however you want to. I'm telling you today, it's a lie of false prophets in the culture. 
It's not going to make you more happy, friends. It's going to lead to just as much and far more heartache and pain and depression, anxiety, anger at other people. It's a lie. Don't buy the marketing. But rather, listen to the voice of God that has spoken out to you over and over again. God has sent to you, just like Israel, prophet after prophet, to tell you His good word and His good will for your life. Do you want to know what God's good will for your life is? Verse 10, this is what the Lord says. When 70 years of Babylon are complete, I will attend to you. I will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. I tell you, these words, just as they were spoken to Israel, are spoken to you today. God has a plan for you, and the plan that God has for your life is not a plan for destruction. The plan that God has for your life is to give you a future, is to give you a hope. The plan that God has for your life in Christ is eternal life. It's forgiveness for everything you've done wrong. It's joy even in the midst of suffering and exile. For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your well-being, not for disaster. To give you a future and a hope. You will call to me, and you will come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me, and you will find me when you search for me with all of your heart. I will be found by you. This is the Lord's declaration. I will restore your fortunes and I will gather you from all nations and places where I have banished you. This is the Lord's declaration. I will restore you to the place from which I deported you. God has good plan for our life. God rightly has great judgment for evil and injustices. And God's the one who defines what is right and wrong. And He's right. God has great justice that He is going to bring. But do you not see in this, you don't see an angry God here. You don't see a God who's excited about judgment. If He was excited about judgment, He would have done it generations ago for the people of Israel. You see, a God here is going to rightly bring judgment. But even as He is bringing judgment and sending them off into exile... He is still providing for them. Even as Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden because of their sin and disobedience to God, it's God Himself who is making clothing and provisions for them, and then God Himself who helps them to thrive even outside of the garden. I tell you, because of our sins, our lives are not what we expected. But wherever you find yourself today, God's desire for you is to seek Him and you will find your thriving in Him. Are you far away from home? God has plans for your good. Are you far away from family? God has plans for you to thrive. Are you in the midst of a difficult season of suffering? God has good plan for you. And you will find God even today when you seek Him. And you seek Him with all of your heart. I tell you today, this God is a God who wants to be found. Let me ask you, how much does a father love a son? 
Incredibly so. How much does a new father love a new baby son? (laughs) Powerfully. It's a joy to experience it. We've had members of our church recently who, several of them actually, so not just one, whose, whose little baby child has needed a surgery. What could be more terrifying than this? What could cause more grief for a family than their their sweet child having to go into a surgery and an operation to save their life? Is not the love of a father so expressed powerfully in the love that they have for a son? When Jesus uses this illustration to explain God's love for us, He says, you guys know what a father's love is for a son, And all y'all are evil, is what he says. I'm not joking. He says, but which of you, if your son has need, would give him something bad for him? Which of you, if your son is hungry, wouldn't give him something good to eat rather than something that's going to hurt him and poison him? And God says, how much more loving is the Father in heaven? How much does a father love a son? Well, I ask you all the more who know God, how much does the Father love? love the Son, Jesus Christ. Can there be a greater love than God and God, the way the Father loves the Son and lifts Him up over all things, and the way the Son loves the Father and submits His life in all things? And yet, I tell you today, Father God loves you with the same love that He loves the Son in Christ. It's outrageous good news. The Father, in letting Christ come and die on the cross for us, the Father loves you with the same love that He loves Christ. Christ has given Himself for you with the same love that He submits Himself before the Father. I love my job. I just get to give good news like this. I get to give good news like this that's so good, it's unbelievably good. I don't know how much more exciting I could make it with balloons and confetti and a giant novelty check or something to be able to go and announce to people the God who created the universe loves you in ways you can't imagine and has good plan for you. And He is patient. We've all done evil and we've all deserved judgment, but He's been patient with you because He doesn't want you to see that judgment In fact, Christ has already paid for everything that you've done wrong. So instead of you, God Himself took your place in judgment so that you could take His place in the affection of God. All that's required of you now is to put your trust in Christ and seek Him and seek Him with all of your heart. So what should we do today? Listen to what God is going to do so that you can endure difficulties. What do you need to do because of this passage? Just listen to the Word of God because God speaks to help you endure difficulties just as He did right here. What do we need to do today? Be content where you are and trust God's long-term plan for your life. Thrive in exile. Build up. Build a family, build a community, build a mini-civilization of joy that worships the Lord in the middle of the world. Seek the good of the city around you. Seek the good of the country around you. Pray for it. And be able to point to specific ways in which you've made it better yourself. Don't listen to bad prophets. And don't be deceived. 
Don't think that the grass is greener for the world. Rather, believe God's love for us. Today, you need to know the heart of the Lord. Know God Himself. Because God said He wants you to know Him. And you will when you seek Him with all of your heart. So seek Him, and He will be found because He wants to be. To seek the Lord means to turn away from the evil in our lives. So by all means, friends, you're not going to lose anything. You're not going to miss out on anything that is good and joyful, but turn away from all evil. and Pursue Christ with your life, because you'll find Him if you seek Him. And then you'll find out He was the one seeking you all along. Father God, I thank you that you are so gracious to us and have been so patient with us. I thank you that you are a God who makes us thrive in exile. I pray that we would not harden our hearts today, but believe and follow you. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.